The Social Security Administration is on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list, mainly because of its long-term fiscal uncertainty and whether it can pay the benefits it owes retired Americans. But it also has other internal management problems stemming from its Office of Inspector General. That's according to my next guest. She's director of the Effective and Accountable Government Program at the Project on Government Oversight, POGO, Faith Williams. Faith, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. And the Office of Inspector General seems to be, by published reports and research you have done, they retaliate against whistleblowers? Yes, they have. And excuse my voice, by the way, I'm fighting a summer cold, as are so many of us. But what we have learned and what the whistleblowers have reported to us is that not only have they faced whistleblower retaliation in the past, but that whistleblower retaliation is ongoing. Now, one of the whistleblowers, Deborah Shaw, she won her initial case at the Merit Systems Protection Board, and that case is now on appeal. The other whistleblowers settled after essentially a financially ruinous suit. So her whistleblowing retaliation has not been confirmed in the same way, but we certainly believe what they tell us. And do we know the nature of what it is they're blowing the whistle on? We do, in fact. So it all has to do with a program called the Civil Monetary Penalty Program. And that is essentially, it levies fines against people who have wrongfully received certain social security benefits. And that might sound like it makes sense. It does make sense. In fact, you know, the program's been around since 1995. And if someone is receiving benefits when they shouldn't be, or if they're receiving too much, it does make sense to investigate that and levy a fine uh, you know, as needed. And for all, many years, more than 20 years, investigators in the Social Security Administration's Office of Inspector General, who administered this program, would take many factors into account when levying these penalties. So they would take, for example, was it intentional, right? Or was it an accident? What is someone's financial state? What's their ability to pay? These are frequently, if not the vast majority of folks, you know, these are elderly people. These are people with disabilities. These are people struggling to make ends meet. These are people that hit maybe all of those categories. And so they took those factors into account. And starting around 2017 or so, that shifted. They no longer took someone's financial state into account, for example. And as a result, and in an attempt, we think, to really juice the numbers of this program to make it look like it was really bringing in lots of money, these penalties became exorbitant. And these two whistleblowers spoke out in alarm, not just at the size of the penalties that were being levied, which were so unusual, but also about the change in procedure. And that procedure was statutory. So they blew the whistle on that as well. Right. So if the Office of Inspector General then investigates these cases sounds like they were not following the statutory requirements for bringing a case against someone receiving Social Security, and then they were also overdoing it on the penalty side. Then to whom do the whistleblowers bring their claims? Do they bring it to the very office that is supposed to investigate the claims? They do. And, and actually, that's a key responsibility of inspectors general is statutorily their counsel. The OIG counsel is also the whistleblower coordinator. So that person is responsible for training their agency on whistleblower protocols, procedures, things like that. And so, yes, when these two Office of Inspector General whistleblowers raised the alarm, they did so to folks in their own office. And they were not just shut down, but they were then retaliated against. They were escorted out of the building a few months after initially raising the alarm. They were placed on a combination of sort of paid leave and then one was terminated and, and then brought back and, you know, et cetera. But yes, it's sort of like the foxes guarding the hen house in, the, in this instance. 
We're speaking with Faith Williams. She's director of the Effective and Accountable Government Program at the Project on Government Oversight. But it sounds like, you know, and I want to get more to the retaliation and the aftermath, but it sounds like there's a built-in conflict of interest when the Office of Inspector General both looks at these particular types of overpayment cases, but then also receives whistleblower complaints about performance of the Office of Inspector General itself on that very program. Well, it's it's interesting you say that. I think when the Inspector General Office works as intended to be, it is not a conflict of interest. These folks are supposed to adhere to, quote, the highest ethical principles. So when inspectors general are doing their jobs, are fulfilling their missions, I should say, to their fullest extent, they are absolutely the right place for whistleblowers, and they are the right place to report government waste, fraud, and abuse. But in instances where inspectors general or folks in the office of inspector general are not fulfilling their mission, yes, it becomes very much this catch-22 of I want to report wrongdoing, but what do I do? And that is why there are mechanisms in place like SIGI, the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. That's why SIGI exists to sort of help watch the watchdogs. Do we know whether SIGI is looking into the OIG at Social Security? We do. Now, when I asked Siggy for comment recently, they would not confirm that Inspector General Ennis or her office is under investigation. But we do know from other reports that Siggy is looking into what has been happening. And Siggy is not the only one investigating what's going on there. It's truly the high fines and the change in procedure are one element of a very dysfunctional Office of Inspector General. So, for example, Dozens of auditors, investigators, and other staff in the OIG have quit or retired, many indicating frustration with the office's leadership. During the pandemic, Inspector General Ennis monitored the keystrokes of some of her investigators who go out and investigate these claims. And I use that phrase deliberately. They go out and investigate these claims. Yes, some investigations, you can pick up a phone or send an email, but sometimes you need to, so to speak, pound the pavement and see what's going on. So you're not necessarily sure. sitting at your computer Yet she monitored keystrokes. Some investigators were disciplined or terminated, and the tactic fueled a no-confidence vote from the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, which is pretty unusual, I would say. And all of this has an impact on morale and ongoing investigations. I mentioned the SIGI investigation, but the acting Social Security Commissioner announced an investigation last year. The Office of Special Counsel, which specifically looks at whistleblower retaliation, is also investigating the Office of Personnel Management audited the IG's workforce planning strategy. They completed that audit, but other concerns were raised about staff departure. So now they're digging into that as well. Sounds like they're losing places to hide. But I want to get back to the yeah, whistleblowers themselves. You said one just gave in because of a ruinous lawsuit. What was that mechanism? Right. She was suing the agency to get her job back? or Well, she basically happened? took her claim to the MSPB, the Merit Systems Protection Board, which is where you know employees can go to have recourse against grievances filed against them, terminations, things like that. And there's some subtleties in there, but that's essentially what it does. But these employees, they pay their own legal bills to do that. And that makes sense. They, they can't use the agency's counsel in, in a case like this, and, and of, of course, but these fees are truly ruinous. I mean, you're talking about potentially tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes, you could get your back pay and legal fees, but that can take 10 years sometimes, literally. It can take a long time. I mentioned that one of the whistleblowers, an administrative judge, found you know prima facie retaliation in her case. 
the Office of Inspector General at Social Security appealed that decision. And so all of those remedies are on hold until that appeal is heard or decided, I should say. And there's a huge backlog at the MSPB because it was without quorum for many years. So I, I know the folks over there are working as hard as they can to get through their backlog, but it could be years. And the position of IG, of Inspector General at Social Security, is that person appointed by the commissioner or is that one of the presidentially appointed IGs? Yes, that's a presidentially appointed Inspector General. Which means that the acting commissioner, and I think she's been acting now for the entire length of the Biden administration, I don't know how she stays in the job because of the administrative rules around that, but nevertheless she's there, really can't get rid of the Inspector General if she wanted to. No, she cannot. Um, And so that is why Project on Government Oversight has urged President Biden to remove Inspector General Ennis. And we know that it can be fraught when we talk about removing Inspectors General, especially when we cast back to the last administration. But new rules have been put in place to tighten how and when Inspector Generals are removed. And those are good rules. And when an Inspector General has overseen an office, if not personally retaliated against whistleblowers, and has overseen so much dysfunction, that is a toxic Inspector General, and they must be removed. Faith Williams is Director of the Effective and Accountable Government Program at the Project on Government Oversight, POGO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her essay on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. 
it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came 
do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.